0: Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hasse, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme of the August 2023 issue is Nutrition and Cancer. So today we want to focus on a paper entitled Long-Term Nutrition Alterations After Surgery for Gastrointestinal Cancer. Joining me today is the corresponding author of the paper, Dr. Jose Pimiento. Dr. Pimiento is an Associate Professor of GI Surgical Oncology and the Director of the Surgical Inpatient Services at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. So thank you, Dr. Pimiento, for joining me today.
1: Good afternoon, Janet. Nice seeing you today.
0: So before we start our discussion, do you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share?
1: Nothing to disclose.
0: Great. Well, let's dive in here. So your paper introduces the topic of GI cancer nutrition by quoting that a little over a quarter of newly diagnosed cancer is GI cancer and accounts for more than a third of cancer mortality. So those numbers really caught my attention. And so I think as nutrition support clinicians, we already recognize that patients with cancer are already at high risk nutritionally. And your paper is going to focus on the surgical interventions for patients with GI cancer. So can you first kind of walk us through how and why these surgeries contribute further to malnutrition in a population that's already nutritionally at risk?
1: Uh, So so Janet, I love that you were able to capture this fact that GI cancers account for so many cancer patients. Usually when we think about cancers of the uh, GI tract. We think about the pancreas cancer, esophageal cancer, colorectal cancer. And we kind of overlook the fact that all of these cancers share the GI tract. And all of these cancers are going to be affecting, in one way or another, the way people are ingesting, absorbing, and digesting their foods. So. The reason why these cancers cause so many uh, problems for malnutrition is because they affect the way we take the nutrition. They affect uh, the way we're ingesting our nutrients. Uh, It could be either by obstruction. It could be by limiting the amount of food we can eat. It could be by causing uh, significant alterations in our possibility to digest foods. Uh, And the operations we have to do after we give them different treatments that usually include chemotherapy and radiation, produce even further alterations on the gastrointestinal tract leading to profound malnutrition. So when you really think about it, trying to recognize what is going on with these patients comes down to not necessarily thinking about the procedure that was performed, namely, uh, we did a gastrectomy, we did a whipple, we did an esophagectomy, a bowel resection, but more thinking into the alteration of the GA tract that was produced by the procedures we are performing to put it in a different way when we do a distal gastrectomy we are not just reducing uh, the capacity of the stomach to store foods but we are also changing the way that the pancreatic biliary juices uh, interact with the with the food bolus so we are limiting the, the amount of food that people can eat. And besides that, we're altering the way that those foods interact with the enzymes that are necessary for the digestion. If we talk about a different procedure, for example, an esophagectomy, one can think, okay, well, the GI tract kind of remains in the same structure. You're going to eat, it's going to go to the esophagus, then to the stomach, then to the bowel. But actually, we are doing a vagotomy. And when we do vagotomies for patients, the transit of the of the nutrients, the transit of the alimentary bolus is a lot faster, as uh, some of the delivery of uh, pancreatic and biliary enzymes are going to be uh, altered. So, in these patients, although you may think that the GI tract is working similarly, well, the the, the transit of nutrients is going to, to to be altered. And if we think about the capacity of the stomach when we do an esophagectomy, this patient has have, have a lot less capacity. Uh, if we go for a significant bowel resection, then the amount of, or the surface of absorption that the bowel has is going to be limited. So these patients are going to have absorption problems. So the more you think about it, the more you realize that all these operations that we're doing for patients are altering the way the GA tract works. And when we do that, we're going to lead to acute and chronic changes. And those acute changes are going to be Uh, kind of heightened by the fact that we're giving these patients chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation. And then after the fact, long-term, we're going to be leaving patients that are going to have very significantly different GI tracts. And and to think about it, help us kind of figure out that we need to really keep a close eye on these patients and prevent the malnutrition to to overtake them.
0: So let's kind of delve into that a little bit more and kind of highlight some specific nutrition consequences related to Uh, a couple of the GI surgeries you just mentioned, and I I wanna start with pancreatic surgery. So one of the most significant problems we see following either partial or total pancreatectomy is exocrine pancreatic insufficiency or EPI. So can you kind of address how EPI is caused and to what degree by, is it pancreatic cell mass loss? Is it interruption in the delivery of enzymes uh, via the pancreatic duct, or is it digestive asynchrony uh, or all of the above?
1: Um, so so that is a fantastic point, uh, and I think it's a little bit of all of the above. But if we go just a little before the actual interaction between the nutrients and the pancreatic enzymes, we sometimes forget that each patient uh, culturally and personally, uh, due to their genes, their preferences, have a very different uh, way to ingest uh, foods. Some like uh, salty foods, sometimes more uh, sour foods. Some people like uh, more sweet uh, foods. And when we're trying to address the post-operative changes on these patients, sometimes you forget that some things the patients never ate before and some things the patients really enjoy and some things the patients um, really could not tolerate. So when we keep that in mind and use that as the base of what the patient or where the patient is going to start is going to allow us to understand that after the procedures, we need to remind them that a recommended diet not necessarily is going to work great for them Uh, because we may be using uh, or recommending foods that the patient was never used uh, to having either because culturally they never liked or they were not exposed to or because they never tolerate them. So it reminds me of patients that uh, we always tell them to try like a cream of wheat and then the patients never liked it, never tried it, never eat it, and then what is he still pushing them to try it, you know? So, with that in mind, going uh, precisely to uh, the EPI, we need to think that as we perform this operation, depending on the type of reconstructions we are performing, namely uh, a gastrojejunostomy with what we call a loop reconstruction versus a ruin wide reconstruction, there is going to be uh, the synchrony between the food bolus and the enzymes. And this is going to lead to the patient having some alterations in the breakdown of the nutrients and their absorption. Uh, and that usually takes somewhere between three to six months to kind of uh, be sorted out by the GI tract. Most patients, after three to six months, uh, start to understand a little better uh, what foods bother them and what foods are not really interacting well uh, with their enzymes. Uh, but if we add to this the loss of pancreatic mass that is given by the type of procedure that is being performed, and this loss of pancreatic mass can be 40-50% when we're performing either a pancreatic or we will procedure or when we're performing a distal pancreatectomy to 100% when we're performing a total pancreatectomy, then we're going to have degrees of this pancreatic insufficiency. Uh, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency that is going to lead to patients having significant problems absorbing uh, and digesting uh, different foods. That can lead long-term to significant vitamin abnormalities and and, and, and soluble vitamin abnormalities, as well as uh, just chronic malnutrition. And the difficult part is that a lot of these patients may have diarrhea caused by the vagotomy you perform and they tell you, oh, I'm having diarrhea, so you blame it on the vagotomy, but you really need to go and ask the patients uh, about the flatulence, about um, what are the characteristics, about what are the characteristics of the bowel movements, and once you kind of start uh, really focusing on that, you get a better sense clinically if the patient could be having a problem with exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Uh, There are some tests that you can do to kind of find what is going on with that, and sometimes, Uh, the fecal elastase or the fecal fat can help you uh, honing in the diagnosis. But in most patients after pancreatectomy, whipple or a distal pancreatectomy, uh, it's very clear that that is the issue. And starting the supplementation as soon as possible, understand that you need to titrate it uh, based on patient symptoms is important. Sometimes one uh, recommends pancreatic replacement based on weight, and sometimes uh, that can be uh, problematic for certain patients that we experience this uh, similar symptoms as uh, the ones produced by pancreatic, uh, exocrine insufficiency, such as bloating, nausea, abdominal pain, if they are taking too high of a dose of, of pancreatic enzyme. So it's like everything in life, uh, you can have too much, you can have too little, or you can just try to just just right.
0: So let's flip here. So we've been talking about exocrine insufficiency. Let's flip to endocrine, because you, in your paper, you talk about three type 3C diabetes after pancreatectomy. So can you explain to our listeners what's the difference between type 3C and type 1 and 2 so we have a better understanding and a better ability to treat specifically type 3C?
1: So in the end, uh, the final result of of diabetes long-term is going to be uh, the same regardless of what is the origin. But thinking about the types in type 1, type 2, and type 3, help you especially the type 3c help you remember that when we are performing these pancreatic resection surgeries or when patient has any type of chronic pancreatic issues such as chronic pancreatitis they can develop diabetes and this will help us figure out a little sooner their management of these patients before they get long-term complications from an uncontrolled diabetes so type c a diabetes basically is a diabetes caused by pancreatic reasons, in the case of a distal pancreatectomy or a total pancreatectomy or a pancreatic uh, you will still leave for the patient a portion of the uh, pancreatic um, endocrine and exocrine mass. Uh, so they will have uh, some insulin that can help them handle a little bit their sugars and, uh, and have a little less problems with diabetes. Uh, But if you're going to have a patient that is going to have a total pancreatectomy, uh, it's very important that we as clinicians, especially surgeons, remember uh, to before scheduling these patients for surgery, have a very, very uh, intensive uh, coaching and training. Have the patients seen an endocrinology so they understand what life is like. If they have no pancreas, Uh, have them understand how to start using insulin. And a lot of times, the patients that were diabetics before surgery, and we do a total pancreatectomy, tend to cope a little better than the patient that were no diabetics and all of a sudden become uh, brittle diabetics. So, so anything we can do for the patients to understand better what life is going to be after we perform this procedure is important. Also, uh, for the clinicians, it's very important to remember that if uh, we do a distal pancreatectomy or a pancreatic we're going to have somewhere between 20 to 30% of patients that will uh, go from uh, not being uh, diabetic to be pre-diabetic or diabetic. Some patients that were pre-diabetic becoming diabetic. So keep this in the back of our mind, uh, especially for long-term diet for those patients is important. And also to uh, help recognize early on that the patient is or became diabetic and start treatment as soon as possible. And that will require, as long as they have some pancreatic cells left, uh, it could be oral medications versus uh, insulin. But I think what we wanted to do by bringing to the forefront this type 3C is to have the clinicians uh, recognize that whenever we do pancreatic resections of different degrees, we can uh, make a patient diabetic. And uh, the treatment for diabetes uh, requires, uh, the treatment for diabetes needs to be started as soon as possible to prevent long-term complications. Um, So I don't know if you had any additional comments on that or any additional questions.
0: The only other comment I would make to that, Jose, is the ones that I see in my patients who have pancreatectomy, especially if they're not obese, when they have this type 3C, they're very insulin sensitive which is very different than our type 2 diabetics where we're having to get more and more insulin. Mm-hmm. These people respond to very small amounts of insulin. So, um, And then also, if they've had a total pancreatectomy without islet transplant, then they don't have glucagon either. So um, those lows can be very uh, crucial to know. So I agree completely that those people are best served by seeing an endocrinologist.
1: And, and I can tell you that our technology is, is amazing the monitors, the the way to manage insulin pumps, all of this empowers patients. I remember when I was training, we feared doing total pancreatectomies. It was actually very concerning for us because the patient would struggle and we know we're going to change their life in a way that sometimes was difficult to live. Uh, But more and more, especially in the last five, seven years, technology has allowed us to have patients with glucose that is extremely well-controlled, living very normal lives. Uh, but certainly, we need to be extremely careful and not to go over with uh, the insulin.
0: I agree. That technology has been great. So I'm going to change um, my focus here for a minute. Uh, you also talk about how diarrhea can be a complication of many different kinds of GI surgery. So can you summarize some of the content that you had in your paper that describes what surgeries or how consequences of these surgeries really can kind of contribute to or cause diarrhea?
1: That is a great point. So when we think about diarrhea, uh, there's a couple of different things that we need to consider. And number one is if we're really talking about just high output from a stoma or or just actually large number of bowel movements. And that is important because we have this story where uh, we had a patient uh, that we did an ileostomy for uh, that used to be lactose intolerant. And he was extremely happy that he was able to take uh, milk now because he wasn't having severe diarrhea or completely oblivious to the fact that his ileostomy output was about two and a half liters a day. But he was extremely happy that milk was now being tolerated so much better. So sometimes we need to remember when patients have ileostomies that we're dealing basically with uh, uh, the stomach output that is akin to having a significant diarrhea, although with little different of the uh, complications related or the way the patient feels related to having to be in the bathroom all day. So in the one extreme of having significant, significant um, stool output would be having an ileostomy and uh, total colectomies or having to perform an ileostomy to protect colorectal resection are uh, managed by trying to a the stool, trying to be sure the patient has enough liquid intake, and uh, to be sure that the patient has the antidiarrheals that are going to help thick the output and help it make it so the patients are not going to become uh, dehydrated and they're going to become malnourished because of the output. But a lot of operations we really are going to cause diarrhea. Basically, any operation that cuts the vagus. Uh, can lead to diarrhea. In some cases, the diarrhea can be significant for patients to a point that they have to change their habits in life. They don't want to go out because they're going to have diarrhea. And sometimes it can be debilitating. Uh, So for those patients, uh, sometimes the bile sequestering uh, medications can help, such as Western, for example. And adjust the diet to avoid a high glucose intake uh, can be helpful. And also uh, having dry meals more than, more than wet meals can be very helpful. Uh, in anybody that has reconstruction of the uh, GI tract, for example, a gastroenterostomy or an enteroenterostomy, uh, they can they can develop significant diarrhea. And in those cases, uh, usually you can change it by altering the, the, the foods the patients are taking and uh, using sometimes uh, fiber uh, to work up a little bit the stool, uh, you modulate uh, the function of the fiber by the amount of liquid the patient uh, takes, and uh, that sometimes is very helpful for patients. There is no magic bullet for those. Some foods are going to have the patient have more bowel movements than others. As we were talking about before, uh, any loss of pancreatic uh, cell mass will lead also to pancreatic uh, exocrine cell mass, and that can lead to a significant diarrhea. So in that case, giving supplementation is going to be uh, very helpful. And some of the colorectal resections can lead to diarrhea, especially subtotal colectomies, or sometimes right colectomies can lead for diarrhea, especially with fatty meals for the following three to six months after surgery. Funny enough, some patients, after you perform a, a colorectal resection, if they had issues with diarrhea in the past, sometimes they get better. And I really don't understand what is the physiology for it. But Patients a lot of time fear that they're going to have a diarrhea persistently after operations we perform, and and a lot of the times they don't, and it's because we just don't fully understand how each person's uh, GI tract works, and uh, they may work in different ways, respond different to different foods. So like everything, listen to our, listen to our patients, figuring out how the foods are interacting with them and how they are. Uh, coping with the changes in diet, the changes in uh, volumes, the changes in the amount of liquid they can take, how that impacts their bowel movements. And occasionally, as they decrease the amount of liquid they used to take with meals, actually you're obligated to give them more uh, stool softener than you did before. Uh, Also remembering that these patients sometimes are going to be undergoing treatments for different recurrences, chemotherapy that can also lead to diarrhea. But some patients have chronic pain or develop metastases that require pain medication. And in those cases, the management of the constipation is even more important. So we see long-term changes uh, with diarrhea and also some patients that down the line will have significant constipation more related with the treatments we are doing to them at that point.
0: So let's switch to that side because on the other side of that spectrum is reduced motility. I have a patient like this who keeps coming in with recurrent small bowel obstruction, maybe it's from strictures or obstructions, and especially in those patients who say that you don't want to take back to the OR and the patient's prone to those complications, how would you address nutrition for those patients, either in the short-term and or in the long-term?
1: That is an extremely difficult challenge because the patients you're talking about a lot of times are dealing with persistent cancer or complications from treatment for the cancer, a radiation enteritis. Uh, they can have uh, significant uh, adhesions from the operations we did. Uh, they can have significant bowel dysmotility secondary to intraperitoneal chemotherapy. For example, when you do a HIPEC, um, there is intraperitoneal chemotherapy, and in those cases, the challenge is always that you try to give them enough nutrients and. You try to limit the times they come to the hospital with bowel obstructions or with asymptomatic constipation or just no sharp vomiting from an ileus, and the issue is that in those patients the GI tract is not functioning correctly. So the management for those patients has to be multidisciplinary, not just from the standpoint of having all the disciplines usually related with GI tract care and namely nursing, dietitians, surgeons, medical oncologists, gastroenterologists, but a lot of times also palliative medicine uh, because in these patients it's very important to understand what are the goals of care and what are the goals of life of the patient. And for some of these patients, the goal is to uh, spend as much time out of the hospital as possible. So then in that situation, you start trying to either uh, figure out a diet that is tolerable, that is also palatable. So you are going to be trying to do a more a soft diet, try to, uh, in some cases, limit uh, residue. So trying to limit some of the solid uh, foods or some of the high fiber foods. In some other occasions, you need to uh, be sure that because the patient are taking pain medication that they are taking also stool softeners. So there is no uh, inspissation of the Uh, small bowel contents because then uh, there is fecalization of this small bowel and then sometimes you need to give them gastrography orally or enemas to try to get that to break down so they can start eating again. But in in some sad occasions, then you really need to figure out what are the goals of care. And in that situation, sometimes uh, having an honest conversation with what are the goals long-term for the patient or short-term, and if the if the goal is to try to spend as many days as possible at home then we know that the situation is not a curative intent treatment plan but more a management of symptoms stay home with the family as much as possible in certain situations trying to use if the, if the obstruction is more proximal in the in the proximal GI tract uh, trying to place distal uh, feeding tube can be helpful and sometimes even if the patient cannot drink too much and you need to have a Gastrostomy tube training, uh, the fluid, uh, a jejunostomy tube can be used to, to try to feed them distally. And in some occasions, if the patient is still candid for many lines of therapy, treating them uh, with total parenteral nutrition can be an option. Uh, but these patients are extremely challenging and uh, they uh, get readmitted frequently in the hospital. And um, we always are challenge because a lot of situations we just don't understand exactly what is going on until we fully understand what is going on, for example, when disease is recurring. Uh, sometimes we have an, a small bowel stricture and it takes us uh, three, four, five months to figure it out. And then in the meantime, the patient keeps coming back and forth and we keep finding nothing. Uh, internal hernias after proximal GI tract surgeries are quite common, uh, and in those situations High index of suspicion is important, so not infrequently we will be taking these patients back, putting a camera, doing a laparoscopy, and figuring out if we have an internal hernia that we haven't diagnosed. But surgeons and all uh, physicians need a lot of help because a lot of times we are not listening enough to our patients to understand exactly what is going on with their diets, and we can just uh, we just continue giving them Sofran or giving them Reglan uh, and say, you know what, just just go home and take that, and you'll feel better. Uh, so so you bring a, a really important problem that I think I give you more questions than answers with my answer.
0: It's always a challenge, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So let's kind of finish up talking about micronutrients. Are there any specific micronutrient deficiencies that are associated with GI cancer surgery that we should be attuned to or pay attention to?
1: Um, yes, there, yes, there are. The, the answer is yes. I, and I think one that comes to mind is any operation that bypasses or uh, removes the duodenum and makes absorption of iron quite difficult. Uh, And we need to always think about it when we're seeing patients that have a persistent anemia. Sometimes it's giving them supplementation with the caveat that iron supplementation not infrequently is associated with constipation. So these patients are afraid to take the iron because they are afraid to be constipated. Therefore, it's very difficult to treat their anemia. Uh, having iron infusion sometimes make this a little easier. A uh, very important thing to think about is uh, B12. Uh, in patients with total gastrectomy, uh, B12 uh, supplementation is necessary for the rest of the patient's life. Uh, we used to believe that that can only be given parenterally or sublingually, but there is a clear data that giving oral supplementation at a high end of dose provides the same responses. So if you give the patient more than 2,000 micrograms or 3,000 micrograms uh, usually a couple of times a week. Uh, that is plenty, of course, uh, being sure that you're following the IV levels of uh, B12, uh, the, the serum levels of B12 to be sure that your supplementation is adequate. And if you're failing enterally, then parenteral supplementation, of course, is very effective. Additionally, in patients especially that got severe malnutrition, one needs to reset the expectations and remember that like in any severely malnourished patient, uh, we need to think in acute micronutrient deficiency, we need to think in folate, we need to think in thiamine, we need to be sure that if the patient gets admitted after not being eating for a significant time, uh, repleting the patients with uh, electrolytes, with uh, thiamine, with uh, folate, is important uh, to avoid some of the catastrophic complications of prefeeding a patient that got severely malnourished. Uh, In general, however, total colectomies will require uh, monitoring of B12 and supplementation uh, with multivitamins. And I advise most of my patients because they are not having a perfect diet anymore and because they sometimes, due to the alterations in the GI tract, they're not able to consume the recommended uh, fruits, vegetables, and and, uh, healthy foods, uh, grains that are required that thinking in in taking a multivitamin supplementation may be very helpful, as well as looking for uh, specific deficiencies, uh, such as vitamin D deficiency, monitoring uh, for a calcium deficiency, um, osteoporosis. because as these patients live longer and longer and longer after treatments, we are going to start seeing more and more unusual patterns of micronutrient deficiency because when these operations uh, were designed, especially a whipple surgery or a total gastrectomy, I don't think they were intended to have people living 30, 40 years with them. So we are just learning right now uh, what happens after 30 years from a whipple, what happens after 40 years from a total gastrectomy. We just, we just never thought about it because the patients, uh, sadly, were not living this long. But But we are going to be dealing with a society that has these individuals, all around us, patients that had uh, bariatric surgery, patients that had cancer surgery, that are going to be coming to our clinics, and we are going to have to learn from them and have to uh, be very attuned to the possible problems to, to try to help them, uh, because we're just going to learn how challenging they are as they uh, as they live longer and longer. I
0: think you've given us a lot to think about today. Um, but before we close, Jose, are there any? additional comments that you want to share with our listeners?
1: No, I really appreciate uh, you bringing this topic to the forefront. Uh, I really think that with the chemotherapies we're giving, uh, with the treatments we're giving, with the expertise in surgery, we are more and more operating on patients that have more comorbidities, more challenges, that are sick and that they were before. And it's upon us, the medical community, and especially are the the specialists in in nutrition, the people that are interested in nutrition, to think about these problems, to recognize these problems, and to help our patients live good life, to help our patients uh, fulfill their dreams, to help our patients uh, have good quality of life. And sometimes it's very easy with our short times in clinic and our short visits to kind of not think about it and think that maybe somebody else's problem, but really it's ours. And that is why uh, I really appreciate you bringing uh, this topic for this podcast.
0: Well, we really appreciate you, Dr. Pimiento, for writing um, and co-writing and and authoring this paper and sharing your expertise with our listeners. So I want to invite our listeners to learn more about this topic, as well as some other papers on cancer and nutrition in the August 2023 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. So thank you, Dr. Pimiento.
1: Thank you very much.